If you would please turn in your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. So we continue to move through this passage, or this letter from Paul to Timothy, ultimately to the church at Ephesus and then to the church at large and us today. I'll begin reading in verse 1. We need to see 1 through 8 as a unit. It's a, it's a thought, a paragraph, if you will, starting in verse chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that treaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving may be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I am telling the truth and not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage that we can shed light, that your word sheds light on our need to pray for the unsaved. Now, Lord, may we as a church, we as individuals, rise to the occasion in obedience to your word in praying for the lost. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is calling for the church to pray, to pray, to make requests to God. God, uh, Prayer tends to affect things. Prayer tends to affect our own life. As the prayer, I find that uh, I'm changed more by prayer than than anything else. And it, it actually can affect the church as well. The church is changed when the church gathers around and prays. You've seen that in your own life. You've been praying for things. And um, you may be, have been, be praying for something and you begin to realize, you know, that, that's not real accurate. Maybe that's not exactly the way to say it. Maybe, and I should pray this way. And, and we begin to refine our prayer and to, to make our prayer more biblical, more in line with, with Scripture. If we don't do that, we should do that. When we begin to think through or pray, even in our mind or, or out loud, it just it helps us to clarify, at least in our minds, and, and articulate uh, what exactly is our request. And when we begin to do that, we begin to evaluate, is this request, does it really line up with the Word of God anyway? We Sometimes we can just stop praying for something because it's, we know that's not really according to the Word of God. Someone has said that prayer is a battle of the will. Of the will. Of you're submitting yourself to the will of God. And of course we see that in the teaching of Christ. In Matthew chapter 6, the, the passage that was read to you earlier, when Christ taught His disciples how to pray, 
He said, uh, he said, uh, pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your will be done. And at the end of the prayer, he says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and glory forever and ever. It's God's will that is to be done here on this earth. But sometimes we have to pray and think and articulate so our will lines up with His will. And you kind of see that in Luke chapter 22 in Christ's prayer before when He was facing the cross. Now, He was perfect. He knew exactly what He was praying for. There didn't need to be any correction, but you kind of see the same thing. Father, He says, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. If it fits into your will, if there's any other way. And yet, he says, that not my will be done, but your will be done. And, and you see that, that kind of, that thing, that same thing. It's this, this lining our will up with the will of God. That's what we see. Prayer tends to, prayer tends to do that. It affects us. It affects our life. It affects the way we think. <clears throat> Now, Paul is calling the church to evangelistic prayer. Evangelistic prayer. Um, and last week, we looked at the importance of evangelistic prayer. And we, we saw the heart of evangelistic prayer as well. And he says, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. Entreaties, we saw that that's the plea uh, for mercy on uh, based upon the need of the unsaved. And we look out and we could see the need of the unsaved and we are to come to God and plead to God for them. And then he says prayers. This is the more formal request. This is a respect and, and reverence to God because He is the one that is to be worshipped. He is the one that is in control of these things. And then he says petitions. That's a, a sympathetic request, a, a a request submitted as though it were to a king on behalf of someone else. Petition. And then thanksgivings. Uh, that is those requests and those uh, uh, acknowledgement that, that uh, in thanksgiving that what Christ is going to do and what He has done. We are thankful for those things. Evangelistic prayer is others-centered. It's others-centered praying. It's praying to God on someone else's behalf. Now, Paul has to address this issue probably because of the false teachers. These Judaizers have come in and, and they were beginning to teach these things that are not uh, correct in the church and probably having to do with the Jewish um, sect. And uh, it had affected their evangelism. They had stopped praying for the unbeliever. So Paul has to come in and say, first of all, this has to be done, praying for the unbeliever. One of the commentaries that I read said this, and I like that. He says, uh, that which uh, adversely affects the church's prayer life attacks her at the very essence of her existence. It's an attack on the church and to the very the very essence of her existence when you take out prayer from the church. It's an attack, really, by these false teachers. And it has, it's kind of like a domino effect. You stop praying, 
You stop caring about the needs, or you stop caring about the unsaved. You stop seeing the needs of the unsaved. You stop having pity and compassion for the unsaved. And you stop evangelizing. You take no action. If you don't care, then we begin to rationalize our, our witness and say, oh, we don't need to witness. We'll just leave that up to God. And, and we begin to distance ourselves from the world and have very little impact and, uh, on the world. And it, it becomes a, a demotivating factor. We find that we have no motivation. And it starts with prayer. And then now, evangelistic prayer tends to keep the unsaved right at the forefront of our mind. When we're constantly praying for the unsaved, then the the reverse begins to happen. We do see the needs of the unsaved. It becomes clear to us, more clearly defined, and our hearts are are changed, and our hearts are grown toward those things, and that's the kind of heart that will make a difference in a community. That's the kind of heart that, that we have to have to make an effect into Daniels into into Beckley. Now, how do we cultivate that heart? You know, how do we how do we drum that up? Well, Paul's saying here, just obey this command. Do it. Just do it. And when we begin to to uh, pray evangelistic, pray that the Lord would um, uh, work in the hearts of men and women and and save them. And that will help to cultivate this kind of heart. And that's exactly what I want us to see. Praying for the unsaved transforms our heart and thinking to conformity to Christ. Prayer does what it does. It changes us. That's exactly what's happening here. Paul is recognizing this. And the the question that we ask here is, why pray to God for the salvation of unbelievers? And Paul gives us four motivating factors. Four things, four reasons to pray and, and the results. And here's what's going to happen. Number one, let's look at these just quickly. Number one, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Number one, praying for the unsaved or praying for the salvation of the unsaved pleases God. Now, we mentioned that last week. When we begin to see that we are going in the right direction and that we are pleasing God, that is a real motivating factor in our life. It, it just motivates us that, to, to know that we are pleasing our Heavenly Father. And Paul, Paul wants us to know, God wants us to know His will. In uh, Romans chapter 12, Paul says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. Now, we need to, we need to know this will of God. He says the will of God is so that um, that which is good and acceptable, the same phrase, good and acceptable and perfect. The understanding is, is that we know this will and that we begin to do it so that we brings pleasure and glory and honor to God. Paul prays for that in Colossians. The, the whole Colossians church, when he found out that they were believers, when they come to know the Lord, he says, uh, for this reason I also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray that you, for you and to ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will. 
the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul prays that they would know the will of God. Paul prays that they would come to understand what really pleases God. Now why? So they can do it. So they can do it. If you turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, I I know I'm going quickly through these verses, but I just want to lay this foundation for you that it is important that we know to please God. Paul says this to the Ephesian church, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If we are not doing the will of the Lord, if we don't understand it and are implementing it into our life, then we are being foolish. Foolish. The will of God is to be found in Scripture. So we have to ask the question, what does He want? And the first step, obviously, without faith it is impossible to please God, the the author of Hebrews says. That's the first step. It's faith in Him through Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ, turning away from our sin toward Jesus Christ. That's the first step. And then knowing this this uh, word, knowing what he wants and beginning to implement it into our life, we begin to please God. And Paul says in our passage, he says that this is good and acceptable unto God. It's good and acceptable unto God. Now, children, children love to please their parents. Uh, when they're when they're small, especially uh, they uh, they they're eager to please. They want to hear good job, and and they like to 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 know that their parents appreciate what they're doing, and and um, they're pleasing their parents. Children like to know that, and we as children of our heavenly Father need to be oriented in such a way as that we're pleasing our Father, and we enjoy pleasing. We, we know that we're pleasing Him. We, we see that and, and we uh, enjoy that. And again, that becomes a motivating factor. But now, just by way of application, do we really please God? Because I, I was just thinking about my own life. And, and sometimes I, I think we, we kind of don't understand this idea. We think that, that pleasing God is, is reaching some level of morality. And it's just this social morality that we that we uh, we please God. And instead of living with uh, uh, this girl, I'm going to marry her. Instead of robbing banks, I'm going to come to church. And um, and we begin to we begin to live. It's almost this superficial or this this moral life. And we begin to think, well, that's pleasing God. Paul says, no, it's a little bit more specific than that. It's a lot more specific than that. It's more than just good morals. We raise our children to be good moral people, but they need to be godly people. And to be godly, you have to know what God wants us to do, and then you have to do it. You have to do it. So I think that sometimes we, we, uh, we uh, will please God until it comes to the point that it's inconvenient for us, or, or it's something that, uh, that we may say something like this, I want to please God in the way I want to please God. That's just like Cain. That's what Cain said. I, I want to worship God the way I want to worship. I want to worship God by giving Him the first fruits of my, my labors. I, I, I don't want to deal with this lamb thing. I want to do it the way I want to do it. I believe sometimes we try to please God in the way we want to please God. 
Paul is telling us specifically how to please God. And it is evangelistic prayer. You want to please God, pray for the unsaved. Anything else is not pleasing God. We, we have to be consistently, constantly um, praying for the unsaved. Here's the thing, if our life is going to count on this earth, if it's going to count for anything on this earth, we must please God. We must please God in the way He wants us to please God. Now, we we can live a good moral life, but if we're not praying for the lost, it's not really pleasing God. So, evangelistic prayer sharpens our focus. It sharpens our focus on what is good and acceptable in sight of God. Number two, Praying for the unsaved is consistent with God's desires. Look at verse 4. Who desires all men. This is God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now we need to know that God desires, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Paul is telling us that. He is exposing the heart of God. Here's God's heart. You notice he says, God our Savior. Usually it's Jesus Christ our Savior. We understand Christ is the Savior. But now he's saying God is the Savior. God is the one who has implemented this. It is God's plan that, that he is enacting here. And he is pointing out the fact that God is a saving God. It goes down to his very nature. It's his very nature to save Now, people will look at this verse and say, oh, well, good. You know, God is this great big teddy bear kind of God in the sky, and and He's going to save everybody. Universalism. He's going to save everybody. They'll point to this verse and say, see, He's going to save everybody. And ultimately, everybody's going to get into heaven. But here's what's happening. Here's what happens. God sets His, God's desires is not what drives Him. And we, we do it on the other end. Our desires, they drive us. Boy, we just, we just go with it. God's, God will set His desires aside for something greater. If you turn over to Isaiah chapter 46, Isaiah chapter 46, we see something that's greater than God's desires. Now this, this may sound heretical, but just stick with me. In Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 9, he says, Remember the former things long past, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there was no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish my good pleasure. God has a plan. He has a will. He has a purpose And that trumps everything. In fact, He will crush His Son to accomplish that purpose. If you turn back to just a couple of chapters, to Isaiah 42, He says this, I am the God, chapter 42 and verse 8, He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. God's greatest purpose is His own glory. He is jealous for His glory. He will exalt His glory above everything. And like I said, He will even crush His Son to show His His attributes for His own glory, to show His glory throughout the whole earth. 
So he will set aside his desires. That's his desire. That's his desire. But he he gets no pleasure in throwing men into hell. You could say it that way. He is a saving kind of God. He likes to save men from their sin. He wants to save men from hell and eternal punishment. He is a saving God. He is a saving God. That's his desire for his greater purpose, his greater plan. He will set that desire aside. Because he wants to show his glory in all of its facets, in all of its design. But the heart of God is that he is a saving God and he he desires all men to be saved. Now, can we can we see men and women enslaved in sin and not pray for them? Can can we see them uh, go on and failing to acknowledge God, living their life completely void of of God and yet not yearn for their salvation yearn for for God's greater glory that they would glorify God I want you to notice something though about our own desires um, we have to direct our heart don't we and you get the opposite from the from the world they they say follow your heart we have to We have to direct our heart. In Scripture, what we see is the command first. You yield to God first. Paul says, pray. Pray. Your heart will follow. We have to to direct our heart. We have to tune our heart to do what is, is right. We have to train it. We start by praying first. And then that desire will will be cultivated. The, the heart of God, we, we will adapt the heart of God. It will strengthen, we could say this, we, it will strengthen our desire, resolve. Our desire, you might say. And when we pray, it directs our heart uh, to where we are placing all of our affections, all of our, all of our desires on the save, or for the salvation of others. If we lack motivation for, for uh, evangelism, that's the place to start. Evangelistic prayer, that's where we start. And we begin to pray. We begin to pray. And then we develop the heart of God. It's cultivated within us. But the heart of God is that He desires all men to be saved. We need to understand that. I think sometimes we don't. I think we, we see God as, ah, He wound up the clock, He got things started, and He's just kind of walking away. Or He's just not really cared, He's just going to leave things up to the way they go, the, the way things go. But no, He is not a dispassionate God. He desires all men to be saved. And we have the wrong attitude many times when we go out into the world and, and have no compassion, no desire to see people saved. It's not God's desire. God wants people to be saved. Number three, praying for the unsaved is consistent with the spiritual reality of the exclusive provision of Christ. Look at verse uh, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. 
The word for there, the first word in, in this little section points back to the original command of evangelistic prayer. And so Paul is giving us a reason here, another reason for praying evangelistically, praying for the unsaved. And, and this is so complex. This is so rich. This is so deep. I want you to, I want you to follow it here. He's given us a reason to pray and he says there is one God. One mediator also between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that a little bit. Out of the billions of people on this earth, billions of people that have lived since creation and that will live since till the end of the earth, there's billions of people and there's only one name, only one person that will get us to God, and that is Jesus Christ. The whole of Created humanity has to come through one person. How's that? That's staggering. Everyone has to know the name of Christ. Everyone has to come through this one way, this one message, one plan, and that's exclusive. This one man, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And I like what he says. This is the testimony given at the proper time. This is a, a testimony. God's uh, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was the testimony of God's graciousness to man. This is a testimony of God's graciousness, His love for the world, for mankind. Again, it's showing the heart of God, isn't it? It's exclusive. Very exclusive. But now watch what Paul does. He, he, throws, us, he throws us something else here. He can. He contrasts that exclusive way. Only one God, only one man, uh, only one uh, mediator between man and God, and that is Jesus Christ, uh, who gave himself a ransom for all. He opens it up, and he says, look, the invitation is for all. There's only one way, only one way. But the invitation is, is for all. Billions of people... Billions of people, yes, the, the, the invitation is for all, but it's all about one name. That's exclusive. Now, it, what he's doing, he's beginning to show us our task. Our task. He's not trying to uh, um, develop some uh, dissertation on the atonement here, although I believe it's consistent with the rest of the atonement. There will be some people will say this, that, uh, oh, well, I know what he means, that uh, Christ... Uh, uh, he, he gave himself as a ransom for all. He paid every sin so that we don't have to pay for our own sins. And so everyone is going to go get into heaven. That's, again, universalism. Paul could kind of sound that way, but we know better than that. We, we do not believe in a double jeopardy that we pay for our sins and Christ pays for our sins. No, not at all. Christ paid for them. There is an exclusivity here, and the exclusivity here is that you must believe. There's only one way, and that is, that is Christ. That is Christ. I like what John MacArthur says in this. He says, Christ's atonement is therefore unlimited in its sufficiency, but limited as it is applied in its application. He says there... In other words, let me put it the way Paul would put it here. 
he would be reading this or saying this to the church at Ephesus and to, to Timothy. And he would be saying, look, it's not just this one group. This is, this is a message for the world. These false teachers, they were coming in and they would, they would say, oh no, this is just for the Jews. And Paul's saying, no, no, look how vast our, our task is. Look what we have to accomplish. There's only one name that we preach, but the invitation is open to millions. It's not just to the Jews. It's not to the Jews. So that just uncovers our task. It uncovers the mission of the church. It uncovers what we have to do. The only way to heaven is through Jesus. And the invitation is open to all. So that it drives us to our knees evangelistically. Because there's no way to accomplish that task. Other than prayer. Other than prayer. And prayer, we begin to pray and it changes our heart. And we begin to take action. We see pity and compassion. And we take action. So the invitation is very open, but the way is very narrow. And Christ said, few there be that find it. It's going to take prayer, folks. We pray for the spread of the gospel, the spread of this one name, Jesus Christ, to all the world. The scope is, it's an impossible task. It's an impossible task. It's going to take... The whole church, it's going to take many churches. It's going to take uh, a, a team of experts, a team of people knowing what they're doing. Churches have to crank out those people who can, who can articulate the gospel, who can spread the gospel. Men and women who can spread the gospel. That's what, what it's going to take. We have to see that perspective. And when we begin to pray evangelistically, we begin to pray for this, this massive world who needs Christ. It begins to change our perspective. It begins an urge within ourselves. We begin to realize how massive the task is. And it refines our perspective. And let me give you one more. This just kind of adds to this. Number four, praying for the salvation of the unsaved is consistent with the mission of the church. Look what Paul does on this. He, he says, for... Now, this, this goes back for this testimony that was given by God concerning Christ. He says, for this, this message, this gospel, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. When it comes to Paul's testimony, when it comes to just Paul's individual testimony of what God is doing in his life, what God has done in his life, what he has called him to, people would say, oh, that's just subjective. That's just Paul. And Paul said, no, no, this is exactly what happened to me. I was appointed, that is appointed by God, a preacher, that's a, a herald, a herald of the good news, an apostle, that means a sent one, someone that is that is sent, maybe a missionary, and someone with authority even, as the apostle Paul had that, and as a teacher of the Gentiles. What is Paul doing here? God's mission has defined Paul's life. It is defined who Paul is. He is a, he is, everything that he is is related to the church and the mission of the church. It defines who he is. It defines what he does. Many, uh, many of us get our definition of who we are by what we do 
our job. But Paul, he was saying, this, this is personal. This comes down to, this is what God has called me to do. And it's very specific. I'm a pastor, or I'm a preacher, I'm an apostle, and I'm a teacher. He, he's defined his role. And it, and it has to do with the spread of the gospel. It has to do with the church. This is his job. We can look at the, the testimony of Paul. We go back to Acts chapter 9. And we begin to see what God did in his life and what God commissioned him to do. And this is exactly right. This is exactly what Paul is saying here. So by way of application, it all comes, it all comes down to this. How are you connected? How are you related? How are you defined as it relates to the mission of the church? We, we need to see ourselves in that light. In, in the light of our mission, are we deacons, elders, are we teachers? Those are the things that define us. Because the greater mission is the salvation of the world, this global initiative, we may say. We've been hearing that term a lot lately. Paul saw himself as defined by, by the mission that he has taken. You know, even, I was just thinking through this, even... Uh, Timothy's mother and his grandmother, they were, they were defined by their influence on Timothy's life as, a, as mothers and grandmothers, as they, they had that influence. Disciples of this young boy that, that went out, that God used. That's an incredible thought. It's an incredible thing. Sometimes I believe we lose our perspective, our focus on our mission. And we begin to think that the church is here to serve us and the church is here to just, just for our own comfort. And we've got three people, three families, that are getting ready to leave the church to go for the greater cause. The church should be cranking out People, men and women that can evangelize. And they, they come in. We train these, these young couples up. And we, we send them out. We send them out. I think of Nate and Sue. They're ready to go. They're ready to be sent out. They're part of the mission of the church. Part of the mission of the church. And sometimes I, I believe that we, we just think that the church is for, well, I don't know, for our our convenience, our pleasure, our happiness. But the church is under one obligation, that is to train the saints of Jesus Christ to go out and spread the gospel. Go out and spread the gospel. That's our globe. It's global evangelism. That's what we are to do. That's the church. And everything is related to it. And what you do in relation to the church, is the most significant thing really about you. It's your mission, what God has called you to do. It's your giftedness. He's even spiritually gifted you in a certain way to, to meet the needs of the church, to, uh, to be able to raise people up, disciple people, and send them out. So when we, event, we pray for the salvation of, of the unsaved, it, it helps us to sharpen our purpose in life. Sharpen our purpose in life. And the world, boy, they don't understand that, do they? You know, 
Ben and Jackie, they're going to uproot their family. They're going to go to seminary to be trained as a pastor. I thought, I thought you were making good, good uh, money as a nurse. What's the deal? Why would you do this? There's not much money in pastoring. Why would you want to do this? Sometimes people don't understand. People don't understand. There's a higher calling on our life, isn't there? A higher calling. Sometimes we do things that, that maybe the world would say, why would you do that? You're leaving the comforts. You know, Tim and, and Chrissy, they come in. We love them. This is a, they're in the comforts of the church. Why would they ever want to go back out? Why would they ever want to go? Because there's a greater mission. There's a greater purpose to our life. And if we want to accomplish anything on this earth, it's going to be because we first of all begin to say, I want to please God. I want to find out very specifically what is good and acceptable unto God. And that's what I want to do. Not just reach a level of morality and, and think that I'm pleasing God that way. No. We find out what pleases God. We get involved in the mission of the church to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. Do we pray enough for the unsaved? Have we prayed enough that it's changed your heart, that's cultivated a desire to see every person come to know the Lord? Have you taken pity on the unsaved? Do you have compassion on the unsaved that has driven you to take action? That's what Paul wants here. And he, and he emphasizes that. I want every man, and that's every man, is distinct from women. And you want every man to pray evangelistically again, lifting up holy hands it's with a pure heart and, and uh, in reverence to God who we are praying to. And he wants us to pray. That's the mission of the church, the commission of the church. It all starts with prayer. How are we praying what are we doing? Are we pleasing God? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this message is clear. This, uh, this word from Paul to Timothy to the church is uh, unmistakable. I mean, it, it is clear, Lord. You want us to pray for the unsaved. You, you want that to be the front part of our mind in our thinking all the time this unsaved world this billions of people would you want us to to have compassion and pity you want that desire to to well up within us so that we take action now lord help us to just be obedient lord cultivate that as we yield in obedience to you in and just simply praying as we yield in obedience to you, may you cultivate a heart in us that is strong, that burns brightly with intense heat for the unsaved, for those who do not know our God, for those who are robbing God of, their, of His glory, for, for those who are competing with God, for those who are enslaved in their sin, for those who are, are headed to hell. Lord, we know it's not your desire. Oh, Lord, help our desires to line up with your desires. And Lord, help us to take action. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.